Well, the series is entitled, We Need to Talk, and uh, in the world of relationships, I can't think of four more ominous words when strung together. Uh, I've said this in a message in a previous series, but in a relationship that's breaking up, there's two parties, of course. There's the dumper and the dumpy. And I suppose if you have a normal life, you have a little bit of experience in both categories, right? Uh, unfortunately, I didn't have a normal life. Uh, I was always the dumpy, right? So I got the Dear John letters and the breakup voicemails. By the way, is there anything more cold than a breakup voicemail? But I digress. That's for a different day. But I, I understood. I learned. I got a lot of experience with the fact that the phrase, we need to talk, does not mean let's go pick out China patterns, Right? <laughs> It's kind of spelling out the beginning of the end. And then, of course, I learned that, you know, even after you're married, we need to talk can be kind of a scary phrase, you know. If your wife comes up to you and says, hey, we need to talk. Today was my birthday, right? <laughs> well, that's, that's not a good talk, right? And I only did that once, in case you were wondering. Um, but, but when somebody says to you, we need to talk, you, we kind of get that the point that they're making is there's something we need to talk about. It's not going to be a fun talk. It's not going to be a funny talk. It's not going to be an enjoyable, lighthearted talk. It's probably going to be one of those talks that, that neither of us just loves to have. And yet, it's something we need to discuss. It's an important something, right? As a matter of fact, as a couples coach, one of the things that I've learned a lot in my work with couples is that some of the most profoundly important things... The, the big elephant in the room, the, the most important things that should be said in the most intimate of our relationships are the things that are said the least. And so one of the reasons for this uh, series is that we've thought, hey, there are a lot of really important things we need to talk about that rarely get discussed. And so we're just sort of putting them out there. Some of them are, are a little more lighthearted than others. And I've just got to be honest with you, this week I think is one of the heaviest ones of the, of the group. And I really need your permission to kind of go to a heavy place this morning. You know, I would love for this to be a funny talk. I would love for this to be a lighthearted talk. I just can't make it be that. This is going to be one of those times where we have to go to a kind of deep and heavy place. And I got to ask for your permission to do that. But that's the nature of the whole we need to talk thing is sometimes you have to go to a heavy place. So what we're talking about this morning is just a simple question. Why do people cheat? I mean, why do people step outside of the bounds of their relationships and cheat with someone else? That's an important question for me for a couple reasons. I mean, it's important for me in terms of my ministry, in terms of my job, because I, I work a lot with couples who come into my office to talk to me about infidelity. Something's happened in the relationship, somebody's cheated on the other person, and they've come to talk to me to try to sort things out. And so it's really important for me to have some sort of an answer to the question why people cheat. And, and, and I gotta just be honest with you and, and take this little bunny trail here for a second, but um, I... What it's like for me sitting across from a couple, they'll come in, they'll want to talk to me because somebody's cheated, and I'll be talking to this person who has stepped outside the bounds of their marriage and gone and done this with this other person, and yet when I'm talking to them, they're, they seem so wonderful, they seem so nice, and, and, and they're talking to me about their relationship with God and how they want to follow God, and I believe them. I really do. I believe that they want to follow God. I believe they want to do the right thing. I, I feel that I really like this person a lot. And so I'm thinking, how does this person, I mean, here's a person that seems to be a great person, and I believe that they are, and yet somehow something happened, and they stepped outside of their relationship. Why? Why did that happen? It doesn't make any sense. So from a professional standpoint, it's important for me to know, but it's also important for me to know from a personal standpoint. 
And this is where you and I probably have a lot in common because I would bet that just about everybody in this room has been broadsided one way or another by infidelity. Either it's happened in your relationship or it's happened in a family relationship or, or a close friend. That's what happened to me. I was, uh, I was at Oklahoma before we came to Wichita. We, my wife and I lived there for years before we moved to Wichita. And um, at the church that I served before I came here, for years before I even joined the staff there, we were members. So we had a lot of history at that church. And one of our relationships that went back to the very beginning was with this, this guy and his wife and his kids. And our families just kind of, man, we just fit. We enjoyed hanging out together. We enjoyed doing stuff together. I mean, we, we, we volunteered together. We went on, you know, uh, Wendy and I went on couples retreats with this couple together. They, you know, we volunteered together. We were in the same Sunday school class. Just a lot of, uh, a lot of quality friendship with this couple. And I viewed him as a very strong Christian. As a matter of fact, he taught Sunday school for a while. And I, I thought of him as, a, as very strong in his faith. And when we moved to, well, and by the way, for Pete's sake, this was one of the couples that helped orchestrate our going away party when we moved here. And then when we moved, you know, I tried to keep in touch. I would, I would, you know, ride him back and forth from time to time. But I did notice after a while that a couple of the messages I sent to him, I never got a response from. And then my wife, Wendy, said, hey, you know, there's some weird stuff coming up on his Facebook feed. And I sort of looked at it, and I thought, yeah, that is, that is kind of weird. And then after a little while, I, had, I actually had an assignment, uh, something I needed to do for New Spring in Oklahoma. They sent me to, to do something there. And so I had gone to Oklahoma, and I bumped in a, into a friend of mine. And he said, I don't know if you heard what happened, but this, this guy has uh, left his wife and kids to go be with another woman. I just wanted to be sick. Because I, I just thought, why? why? Why him? Why that person? I mean, I, I, I don't feel any less... Uh, I, mean, I still feel as strongly about him as I ever did. I still think he's a good person. And I, I, I have no ability to know where, where his relationship with God is right now, but I still think he's a, he's, he's a good guy. But I got to look at that and go, what on earth could convince a person to trade what he had? I mean, this guy had a, a really sweet wife and, and precious little kids. And I have to go, why would you trade that for this? This doesn't make any sense. So this is an important question, and I've really been working hard to sort through it this week. And I want to just share with you what God has shown me and so we're just going we're, we're to just dissect this question a little bit at a time. And I want to start by just picking the low-hanging fruit. I want to start with the obvious observation that if somebody cheats in a relationship, something has changed in the relationship that they're in. Yes? Because nobody goes into a relationship with the intention to cheat. Certainly not, at least no one who's not pathological goes into a relationship with the intention to cheat. I, I perform a lot of weddings or I officiate at a lot of weddings. And I'm, I'm always thinking that if on this stage, as I'm, or the, this platform, as I'm going through the wedding ceremony with this bride and groom, if I had a big red button on the stage, and by pressing that button, the bride and groom will lock in their faithfulness forever to the other person. By, by pressing the button, they will never, ever be able to cheat on the other person. It's just somehow we've, we've locked it in with the laws of the universe. They can't cheat. Here's what I would propose. I don't think I'd have any, hard, I don't think I'd have any difficulty getting people to press a button. I, it could just be from years of working with premarital couples, but I tend to think most of those premarital couples would go, yeah, sure, absolutely. Because they start out the relationship 100% committed 
to being faithful with the other person. So something has to, something has to have changed. Something has to have shifted within the gear work of the relationship. Well, now, if we were to be able to know what it is that changes in the gear work of a relationship before someone cheats, then maybe we could understand it in other relationships and we could safeguard against it in our relationship. And so we're going to ask that question, what is it that changes? And, and, and I just want to start by giving you this. Satan's goal for your life. If you're a God follower, Satan cannot mess with your eternal destination. That's off the table. He can't mess with that. So if you're a God follower, here's what Satan's goal is for your life. It's very simple. It all boils down to this. Satan wants to get you to make a series of bad trades. He wants to get you to make some bad trades. Now, God is in the business of providing blessings in your life. How many of us believe that as God followers, God wants to bless us? God wants to put blessings in our life, right? So what Satan wants to do is Satan wants to get us to trade away the blessings God has given us for the trinkets of this world that he puts and in, in, he's offering us in trade. Now, I've had some experience with bad trades, especially in second grade, right, uh, at the lunch room, because you know a lot of trading goes on at lunch in grade school, right? And I remember a guy telling me, I will trade you, you know, for your ugly, nasty peanut butter sandwich that's all smushed and mushed up there in your Ziploc bag. I will trade you because I have a magic acorn, right? You trade me your sandwich for my magic acorn, and we'll call it square, and you're getting one amazing deal, right? And, you know, so that was a bad deal, the first of several I've made in my life, right? And let me tell you, I learned something about bad deals. As I was preparing this message, it took me back to that moment in second grade because I learned something in that moment. This is swindling 101. This is fraud 101. You want to get somebody to make a bad deal, here's how you do it, right? You discount. You get that person to discount the value of what they have and you artificially inflate the value of what you're offering. That's how you get somebody to make a bad deal. You're smushed up, mushed peanut butter sandwich, right? It's not, it's not very good. Trying to get you to discount the value of what you have, and it's a magic acorn, right? We artificially inflate the value of what we're offering. When I, uh, before I went in the ministry, uh, I was in the, uh, the car business. I was on the repair side of things. Uh, and um, I was a mechanic for a while, and then I was in service management. And at the end of that career, before I went into ministry, uh, I was working at a dealership, working with service. Uh, but I liked to hang out with the car sales guys because they were a different group of people, right? And I enjoyed just talking to them because they were neat, neat folks. And uh, one guy there was just like, always on top of the leaderboard, always the most successful salesperson, not only in our store, but we were corporately owned. He was the most successful salesperson in several stores. And uh, so I asked him, what's your secret? And, and, and he said, well, there's a few things, a lot of things I do. But he said, you know, one of the most successful things that I do that helps me sell a car is he says, when somebody comes in to buy one, I take their trade in and I go park it next to the ugliest, clunkiest piece of junk service cars on the lot. And then I take whatever car they want to buy, and I park it next to the most gleaming, shining, brand new cars that we have. Because he said, while they're walking around the dealership, I want them to see the car they're thinking about buying as new and bright and shiny and right up there with the luxury models on the lot. And I want to see their car. I want them to see their car as a piece of junk like the ones that are parked next to it. Well, he's getting them to discount the value of what they have and artificially inflate the value of what he's offering. That's how you get somebody to make a bad trade. I mean, let's face it, there are no Dave Ramsey name every dollar seminars in the front lobbies of casinos. <laughs> True story, right? Because the last thing they want you to do is see value in what you have, right? And it works the same way in relationships. 
This is what Satan wants to get you to do. See, so many of us, we know in our heart that there was a time when our spouse or that person that we're in a romantic relationship with, we know that there was a time, there was that honeymoon phase where we thought they were the most amazing person in the world and, and, and we saw so much good in them. And we saw so many wonderful aspects of them. And when we talked to other people, we were glowing about them and we were reporting to them how awesome this person was that we were with. And then you remember when you held that baby in the hospital for the first time and you thought this, this little kid, this amazing little kid could, could never, ever aggravate you or frustrate you or make you want to throw something, right? But you know that real life sets in and our evaluation of those relationships begins to sink. Now, to a certain extent, real life does kind of bring us into reality a little bit. There's nothing wrong with that. But Satan wants to keep you on that trajectory. He wants to push you beyond reality. He, he wants you to see your spouse as less wonderful than they are. He wants you to not see the good aspects. He wants you to see the bad aspects. He doesn't want you to feel the pride and the joy that you felt when you held that baby for the first time. He wants you to feel the aggravation. He wants you to feel the frustration. And he doesn't want you to just feel it. He wants you to live in it. He wants you to feel it all the time. He wants you to feel that feeling like when you think about the relationships in your life, you want to roll your eyes and just think, oh man, that's just so much I have to deal with. Instead of, these are blessings God has brought in my life. These are things that God has brought into my life because he loves me, and Satan wants me to trade those things away. This is a mistake I've made in couples coaching, and, and confession's good for the soul, so I guess I should just cop to it, but I'll be sitting across from a couple who's coming to talk to me about infidelity, and they're telling me the story of what's happened. And it's good for me to, to know that. And it's good for me to be thinking the question of, when did this start? Because a lot of times, if you can get a grip on when it started, then you can begin to reverse engineer the process and think about, well, how, how do we make this thing start to work again? But one of the mistakes I've made is thinking that it began with the fighting, or it began with the marital struggle, or it began with the flirting with the other man or the other woman. Truth is, it began a lot earlier than that. It began when Satan began to get that person to not see the good and who they were with, to not see the good and the blessings that God had put in their life. Satan doesn't ever start by pitching his end game strategy. He's not going to show up on the doorstep of a husband and say, I want you to cheat on your wife. He's not going to do that. He's just going to orchestrate a lot of little things, a lot of little steps that lead to that big one at the end. And there's a story in the Bible about this, and I want to take you to this, and we're just going to dissect this and see what we can learn uh, from King David in 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. The Bible says, In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, King David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now this is King David, of course, the most successful king Israel ever had, a man that God said was a man after his own heart. This is the same David of David and Goliath that went man to man with a giant. This is a guy who had an incredible military career. As a king, he wasn't just a ruler. He was an incredible military leader. And he had had a lot of challenges in his life, a lot of difficulties, a lot of things he'd had to work through. But now things are going pretty well. 
And he's in a successful period of his life, and, and things feel pretty good. And at this moment, a weird time to do this, at this moment, he says, you know, guys, I know this is when we're going to go fight this other, and, and, and by the way, more background than you want to know, but the springtime is when this would happen, because the springtime is when there was adequate food along the, on, along the trip to go fight the other uh, uh, army, and on top of all that, the weather was more favorable. So this was the time everybody was sending their troops out, and David sent his troops out, and he said, you know, I just think I'd rather stay home not feeling it this year. I think I'm just going to hang out around the palace. Think about the weirdness of this. Uh, most Bible scholars say that every able-bodied military man would have left. David would have been the only person, uh, forgive the anachronism, he would have been the only person with a uniform in his closet to not go. As a matter of fact, some Bible scholars, and they could be right, say that every able-bodied man within the age range of men who would fight, would have gone. David would have been one of the few guys left. You imagine as all the guys march off to war and David's waving goodbye, hey guys, have a nice war. I'm going to stay home. The Bible emphasizes that. He stayed home. The other thing the Bible emphasizes is that he sent Joab away. And Joab was, that made sense. Joab was the, the head military commander under David, so it would make sense that he sent Joab away. But it's interesting that we should pay attention to this in the, if you read the life of David, Joab is one of the few people that can really get into David's face and say, you're making a mistake, you're doing something wrong. David would give him permission to, to be honest with him. Joab provided accountability in David's life. But notice that at the beginning of this narrative, we have David withdrawing from his passion, withdrawing from his call. David was a leader. If, you know, there were a lot of areas where he wasn't very successful in his life, but there was one area that he was very successful in. He was a very successful leader. But in this moment, instead of leading, he withdraws from his calling. He withdraws from his passion. He stays home. And then in addition to that, he withdraws from one of the only relationships that I believe stood the chance of getting in his face and, and helping him avoid the mistake he was getting ready to make. I say that, it's not one of the main points of my messages, of my message, but I say that to let you know, we need to be careful about withdrawing from our calling. We need to be careful about withdrawing from relationships that provide accountability, because it, it leaves us in a very vulnerable place. You know when I work with couples who are going through infidelity, there's three, three words I hear all the time. Very, I mean, they come up in almost every one of these conversations. I was bored, I was restless, and I was lonely. I was bored, I was restless, and I was lonely. I think part of that's because it's very difficult for Satan to tempt busy, contented, and connected people. But I just want to say, how, do, how does Satan get somebody bored, restless, and lonely? Well, he's got to get you to withdraw. He's got to get you to withdraw from your calling, withdraw from what you love to do, withdraw from what you find fulfilling. And then he's got to get you to withdraw from relationships that would, people that would tell you the truth. And all of us know who those people in our life are. Because there are some people in our life who won't do that. But you know there are some people in your life who have the guts to get in your face and tell you when you're messing up. And those are the people you can't afford to withdraw from. But Satan has got... David to trade it all away. He's got him trading his passion, trading his connections, trading his relationships. Next thing we see is the image of David waking up from an extra long nap. It's very clear David doesn't have a lot to do. He takes a midday rest. That was normal. But, but, but for him to wake up late in the afternoon would mean that he had taken a super long nap. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2 says, Late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace 
And as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Now, that word, those words unusual beauty, it's the best way they know how to render it coming across into English. But let me just say in the Hebrew, what this means is this person was exceptionally fine, right? She was a knockout, right? Now, to be fair, right, the Bible also uses this term of unusual beauty, just we use different English words for it, but also uses that to describe David. So apparently these were both very attractive people, right? Uh, so, but, but this was a very, very beautiful young woman. And by the way, a lot of pastors over the years, I've heard a lot of preachers talk about, well, this was an act of seduction. You know, Bathsheba was really trying to seduce David. She was trying to entice him into this um, by taking a bath on her roof. And it's just not true. Um, this, this was not an act of seduction. This was actually very normal. Um, this was a very, very hot time of the year. And baths in a home like Uriah's, uh, Bathsheba's husband, in, 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 in those homes, the bath would have been in the most interior part of the house. And there weren't nice fancy doors and coated glass like we have now to provide privacy. And so in order to provide privacy, they would put that bath just as far inside the house as they possibly could. And there was no air conditioning. In the hottest part of the year, it made no sense to take a bath inside the house. You'd have to take a bath because you got so sweaty taking a bath, right? So the, people would take a bath on the roof of their house, and the roofs were flat, and there was always a little half wall around the top of the roof, and so it was a very private place to take a bath, probably the most private place you could find. You couldn't see it from street level, and the way they were built was so that, so that you wouldn't see it from the top of another home. Really, the only place where you would have had a good vantage point to see Bathsheba taking a bath was from the roof of the palace. As a matter of fact, I tend to believe that there were probably a lot of baths within viewpoint of the roof of the palace. Now someday, when I get to heaven, David may take me to task over this. And if he does, I'll have to come find each one of you and apologize. <laughs> but I think when David went walking on the roof, he knew there was a chance this would happen. I think he, I think he knew when he went and took a stroll on the roof, there was a chance he might see something he might shouldn't see. And it's a really, really important thing for us to think about because some of us in this room, we truly believe that in, in the constitution of our character, in, in print somewhere, deep in our DNA, is the fact that if we were ever faced with the temptation to actually step across the line and cheat on our spouse, we would say no. And we feel that absolutely within our being, we feel strongly about it. And yet sometimes... We're willing to do a little walking on the roof. Guys, it's when that image comes up on your computer screen. And to look at it would not be the same as finding another woman and committing adultery with that other woman. And, and, and you see it and you know that, that Jesus has said to look at another woman lustfully is to commit adultery in your heart. And yet you know it's not taking the physical action so it still feels different to you. And so you say, well, you know, I'm not actually crossing the line. But the truth is, and you know it, you're doing a little walking on the roof. Or let's take it to an even more innocent place. Ma'am, that guy who keeps poking his head in your office every day, wants to come and just check on you, see how you're doing, wants to talk to you, have a conversation with you, and you find yourself having this nice, warm, intimate conversation with this guy basically every day. And there is a part of you on the inside that goes, huh, that's kind of weird. I don't have a conversation with another guy every day of the week. But you know, hey, I haven't crossed any lines. It's not like I've cheated on anybody. 
But somewhere deep down in your heart, you know you're doing a little walking on the roof. You say, no, Jonathan, are you being fair? I mean, after all, is it really that big a deal if you're being careful? I mean, you know, I recognize that, you know, for another person, that might be a doorway to something bad. But after all, in, my, in the DNA of my character, I know I, would never do any, I know I would never do anything. So as long as I'm careful and as long as I've set a boundary there, you know, isn't it okay to do a little walking on the roof from time to time? Well, we're going to look at how it worked out for David. But before that, I just want to say, I, when, I, when I was uh, uh, getting ready to go to college, I worked in big ticket retail. And one of the things they taught us when we were learning how to sell things is they said, get a yes from the customer for anything. Get, get, even if it's a tiny yes, get them to say yes to a bottle of water. Get them to say yes to the fact that they like the color blue. You know, get them to say yes to anything because they said the psychology of the matter is that once you say yes, it becomes harder to say no. And especially if you can string together a lot of little yeses, it becomes almost impossible for them to turn the tide and say no at the end. See, that's what's wrong about walking on the roof, is that Satan knows that all he has to do to get us to make a really bad decision is just to get a lot of little yeses. He doesn't have to start with a big one. So, I mean, look what he did with, with David. I mean, if he can just get him to say yes to staying home instead of going to the battle, then at that point, he gets a, a chance to rework all the math. He can rework his entire strategy once he gets that little yes. Okay, he's staying home. Now if he can convince him to go and walk back and forth on the roof, if he gets a yes to that, and now it's a chance to rework all the math. And then if he can say yes to getting David to take the second look, right? then it's a chance to rework the math. And I say that because all of us know in this room, hey, we live in a world where there's a lot of images and a lot of things out there that we shouldn't see. And guys, if an image comes across your computer screen that you shouldn't see, you, can, you can't help the first look, but you can sure help the second look. And our wives and our kids and our families, they deserve husbands who don't take the second look. But David did. He, did. he took the second look with Bathsheba. It was another little yes, and Satan used it to rework the math, and then Satan got him to say yes to just trying to find out about her. Send somebody to go find out what her name is. Send somebody to go find out you know, more information about her, as if David didn't already know. And, 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 he, and, and Satan gets a yes to that. And after this long string of little yeses, then Satan calls the question. And David, a man for whom this is incredibly inconsistent with his character, finds out how hard it is to say no after a series of yeses. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 4. David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her, and then she returned home. And there was a little bit of time elapsed after this. The Bible says David sent her home. It was quiet. It usually is quiet after an affair. The world doesn't fall apart. The universe doesn't implode upon itself. But there are consequences every time. Every time there are consequences. The Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 5, later Bathsheba discovered she was pregnant. And she sent a message to David saying that. If, I've got, if I'm David in that moment, I'm feeling that sinking feeling. You ever know what it's like when, when, when you've been had, when you've been taken, and you realize you made a bad trade, and you've lost something now that you cannot get back. You cannot go back to the bargaining table and retrieve what you traded away. And what you traded for is more problem than it is blessing. You had blessing, and it was adding to your life, but now what you have traded for, you wish you could just give away, because now what you've got is actually causing you problems. So David now finds himself in the middle of a cover-up. This is not, again, my message, but you know the story. 
David sends for Uriah. Uriah is where he should be. He's where David should be. He's fighting the battle against the Ammonites. He calls for Uriah, brings, brings Uriah home, tries to kind of you know, encourage Uriah to take some rest, relax, go spend the night with your wife. And Uriah says, no, I don't believe I'll do that. David, David tries to get him drunk, tries to throw him a party, tries to get him to go home to his wife, right? Because after all, if he goes home to his wife and then Bathsheba turns up pregnant, everybody's just going to say, well, it's, you know, it's Uriah's baby. But see, Uriah has too much character for that. And you think about this. David has been sleeping in his nice warm bed this entire time while his army's been out there fighting this other, fighting this other army. And Uriah says, listen, I'm not going to go home and, and spend time with my wife when my brothers are out there fighting on, 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 on the field. You know, I'm just going to roll out my sleeping bag on the palace sidewalk. And, and David, as soon as you give me the message I'm supposed to take back to the army, I'll just go ahead and be on my way. When David realizes he's dealing with a man of far greater character in this moment, he sends a sealed envelope with Uriah back to the battlefield, and inside the envelope is Uriah's death warrant because David said to, his, David said to Joab, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put Uriah in the front of the battle, and when it gets really, really intense, I want you to gather your other guys and pull them back and just make sure that Uriah gets killed. And David not only committed adultery, now he committed murder. So out of character for him. And God can't just let it go. God's going to have to deal with it. God's going to have to approach David and talk to him about it. And here's, here's where we really kind of anchor this down this morning. Because the question was, why do people cheat? And I could try to give you my answer, and that would be all right, I suppose. But I want to give you God's answer, because God literally tells us exactly why people cheat in this passage. We're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting verse 7. This is God speaking to David through the prophet. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, and this ought to just cause chills to go up and down our spine, if, if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. I mean, God is coming to David and saying, hey, David, let's recap here, Okay. I am the guy who gave you victory over Goliath. I am the guy who kept you safe when Saul was throwing javelins at you. I am the guy who, who orchestrated your military successes. I am the guy who picked you out of obscurity and said, you're not just going to be David, the kid nobody cares about. You're going to be King David, the most successful king of Israel. I am the person who's going to see to it that the kingdom remains united under your rule. I am the person who's going to give you success in everything that you do as a king. That was me, in case you were wondering. I was the person pulling the strings behind it. I was the person giving you blessings. But David, David. If that hadn't been enough, if you were to say, you know what, those things just aren't enough for me, if you would have come to me, if you would have come to me and, and, and told me that wasn't enough for you, I would have given you more. Not, not just more, I would have given you much more. Not just much more, I would have given you much, much more. He said, but somehow, somehow, you let what I wanted to give you look like it wasn't worth anything and you saw this, and you just had to have it. See, this is what God, God's going to tell us why people cheat. Look at this. Because after that passage I just read, he says, Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? He's basically saying, why did you cheat? And then he's going to answer his own question. Why have you done this horrible deed? Because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. Now that word despised there might not be the best rendering. It really means, the, the, the best we can carry it across, it means to disesteem. It means to devalue. It means to look down on. It means to not see worth there. 
It's like God's saying, all these things I did for you, you disesteemed them. You discounted them. You, you saw them as less than they were. And then you saw Uriah's wife and you thought she was something special. You, you had this choice between everything I want to give you and what you thought you wanted and you chose that instead. That's why I'm making such a big deal out of the fact that when Satan calls us to make a bad trade, what he does is he gets us to see God's blessings as less than they are. That's how it happens. That's how my buddy left his wife for another woman. He didn't see what he was turning away. He didn't see what he was trading away. I mean, the rest of us did. That's why it hurts. You know, when we see somebody who cheats, that's why it hurts. And we think, why would they do that to their family? Why would they do that to their kids and to people that, that are so awesome? Because we see what they're trading away, but they have allowed Satan to reverse engineer the gears so much that they don't see it anymore. He says, because you disesteem me. Can I turn this around in the last few moments we have to spend together and just say, if you don't want this in your relationship, and I don't think any of us do, how do you safeguard what you have? How do you protect your relationship from this? Two things, we're going to be done. The first one is this. In a, in a world that looks at the, the massive, huge, steaming garbage dump that Satan has to offer and sees a candy store, we need to be the people who are willing to call garbage garbage. We need to be the people who are willing to look at the junk Satan shows up with and offers us and call it garbage. Call it what it is. In Genesis, we read the story of Joseph, and, and I, I certainly don't have time to go through that narrative, but Joseph uh, was sold by his brothers into slavery, if you know the story, and he ended up a slave to captain of the garden, Egypt, Potiphar, and, and he ended up over Potiphar's entire household because he was just that good. He was so successful, and God was with him in everything that he did. Only problem was that Potiphar's wife kept coming on to him. She kept trying to get Joseph to sleep with her, and, and he kept having to say no. And finally, the Bible records for us kind of this big final conversation that Joseph has with her, because he, the Bible says Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do, and he has held back nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. Notice what he's saying. I, I see God's blessings in my life. I'm very aware of what God has given me, and I'm not willing to trade it away. And then look what he says. He says, how could I do such a wicked thing? Check out his wording. I'm not going to do such a wicked thing. He didn't say, oh, Miss Potiphar, you're so beautiful, and I would love to be with you. And if it were another time and another place, if it weren't for your husband, I mean, I feel the chemistry too, but this is wrong, and we can't do this. No, he said it's garbage. He said it'd be a wicked thing. He said, no, and Satan comes and tries to offer me something to get rid of all the wonderful things God has put in my life. I do believe I will just say no, and by the way, while I'm at it, I'm going to call it junk because that is what it is. Part of safeguarding your relationship is being willing to look at things that the rest of the world thinks are cool and say, no, I believe that's garbage. And then lastly, we need to see value in what we have. And that can be kind of hard in relationships because if you're in a romantic relationship or if you're in a marriage, um, you know you married an imperfect person, right? That was the pool you had to choose from. And sometimes that person that you married is going to display their imperfection profoundly, right? And you're going to really feel that. And you're going to think, well, in this moment, it's a little tough for me to see value in what I have. 
Well, then I want to take you back to the words of God when he talked to David, because I want you to notice that he didn't say, hey, you disesteemed your family. You disesteemed your relationships. You disesteemed all the things I've given you. He said, you disesteemed me. If you stood before God and witnesses and you promised your life to another person, you promised to love and to honor and to cherish them till death do you part, in the moment that you did that, God was part of the equation. He showed up and he was part of the deal. So if you choose not to see value in your spouse, the Bible is saying in that moment we're choosing not to see value in God. That's a pretty heavy thought, but it's real. You say, well, Jonathan, how do I actively go about seeing value in my spouse? How do I actively go about seeing value in my family? I want to take you to this verse, Matthew 6, 21, great biblical axiom for life. The Bible says, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Now, in this passage, God's talking about investing in things of eternal significance. But this is also a great principle for life. The Bible says, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. In essence, the Bible is saying, or Jesus is telling us, your heart will always follow your investment. Always, always, always. I have couples come in my office, and they tell me they've fallen out of love. Totally untrue. They've fallen out of investment. So you want to you begin to see value in the blessings that God has placed in your life. You want to begin to see value in your family and in your spouse. Begin investing in them. Very few of us still have the, the same feelings we have for our spouse as we did when we were dating. But very few of us are still investing in our spouse the way we were investing in them when we were dating. Yes? So we begin to make that investment. I need to shut this down. And I, I want to end it by, by just saying this could be somebody in this room who would say, you know what, Jonathan, this is the worst talk I've ever heard because either I've cheated or somebody that I'm very close to has, or I have a family member who's cheated on somebody, or I'm afraid they might be cheating on somebody. Is there any hope for me? Is there any hope for them? Yeah, a ton, immense, amazing, huge hope. First of all, can I just tell you, you're not you, you didn't make the first or the biggest bad trade ever. I think Adam and Eve still hold that title. Right? They traded away the future of the world for a piece of fruit. To me, that's discounted value, inflated value on a pretty big scale. right? God provided hope for them. God provided hope for each of us who've lived in a broken world. And do you notice that the way that you receive hope is the same way you safeguard your relationship? It's the same two sets of instructions. It's to be willing to call garbage, garbage, and to embrace what God wants for you. You notice when we pray this prayer every week at the end of the message, that's what we're saying. I, we're basically saying, God, I recognize there's garbage in my life, and I'm willing to call it that, but I know what you want for me is better, and I'm going to choose to see value in that. I'm going to choose to reach out to you and ask you to make me part of your family, and I'm going to recognize that everything Satan's tried to do to me so far has just been to sabotage me, and I'm going to recognize that what you want for me is something better. And I'm embracing that. It's the same thing. If you've had this happen in your relationship, do the same thing anybody else would do. Be willing to call garbage, garbage, and see the value in what God has for you in your life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your love and for your hope, even when we make mistakes. And I pray you'd superintend these next couple minutes as we close. Heads are still bowed, eyes are still closed. That prayer I just mentioned, I, I wanna... I want to go through that prayer as we close this service, even though we're in overtime. Because God may have been pulling on your heart as we've had this message. God may have been tapping on your shoulder and saying, today is your day, today is your time. So I want to go through this prayer. And you can say this silently in your head to God. And if you do, it will be settled once and for all. 
Ready, here we go. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died for me. I know I do wrong things. And I know I can't get to heaven on my own. Today I accept your free gift of heaven and forgiveness. I'm choosing to believe in you, Jesus. In your name, amen. All right, everybody, look this way for just a second. I know we're in overtime, but if you just prayed that prayer, I want to ask you to take that talk to us card that you received. Check the box that says, I prayed to receive Christ. Take it back out to guest services. Would you please, we have a packet of materials we'd like to give you, a booklet and a free Bible and a DVD just to get you started in your relationship with God. Thank you so much for being here. Next week we talk about we fight too much.